Well, hello and welcome back. Yes, it is myself, David Connolly, bringing you the news from Stone Pages, the British Archaeological Jobs and Resources, and of course, Past Horizons. All the stories have been collected from various sources, and if you details in each story, you knew I was going to say that, including that all-important source, you'll have to go along to the Stone Pages website at news.stonepages.com. Well, tell me, have you been missing me? I thought so, that's really kind of you. The reason about uh, my absence just now has been because I've been working uh, on the field school, the Rampart Scotland Field School at Sherrifside, along with my colleagues, where we have been in investigating um, what's looking very much like an Iron Age and probably early historic site somewhere in East Lothian. I'd just like to say a big thank you to everybody that was involved. So that goes to you, Adam, to Samantha, to Jason, to Liv, to Maggie, to Nicole, Ruth, Mike, Bernie, Therese, Kerry, Katrina, Lucy, Katie, Sarah, Jesse, and Maddie. And of course, to my colleague, Murray Cook, who has uh, joined up with me to bring you Rampart Scotland. And my dear friends, Tom. Thank you, Tom. Your secret is safe with us. No one will ever know that you're working with Rampart Scotland. And Hanka, hello there. And of course, Stuart. Yes, Stuart, who I've now found out actually listens to this podcast in the bath, which is an enduring image, I have to say. On our archaeological note, however, it's a very exciting site because we have been working on it for a couple of years already before this large-scale excavation. And there we found that we have a palisade from 600 BC, a palisade from 400 BC, one from 200 BC, a scooped settlement from around about 100 BC. Then we have two absolutely massive ditches, which are going in around about, well, I'm going to say just now, maybe 2nd, 3rd, 4th centuries AD. They get filled in. And guess what? Well, they decided to go back to Palisades again. It's a fascinating site, which is going to take a couple more years to actually pick apart. So if you're looking for something to do in 2015 or 2016, you can't do better than come and join us at uh, Rampart Scotland. Anyway, that was Archaeology News. But you want to hear what else is happening around the world. So, ancient logboats, well, guess what? They've been found in an Irish loch as have 8,000-year-old skull. We've got discovery uh, of Mesolithic and early Neolithic sort of transitions in Denmark and a prehistoric circle that dates to exactly, this is the important bit, the same time as Sea Henge has also been revealed. Uh, that's in the south of England. And Uer Saucy, we've got ancient erotic graffiti being found by a professor on an Aegean island. There's a cartoon to be had there and a meteorite fragment being discovered in a 9,000-year-old hut circle in Siberia. The Neanderthals, well, it turns out we can now actually prove with certainty that they ate plants in their diet and they are omnivores. I know it's one of these, oh, well, well we always knew that, but in archaeology, you always have to be certain. An Iron Age hill fort is opening up to tourists in Britain don't really know how you close one, but anyway. And we can also report on the fabulous Bronze Age bling of amber, jet and shell. There's an ancient, now this is absolutely stunning, an ancient burial with a, a chariot, well, they say chariot, more like cart, being discovered in the Caucasus. And, I'm afraid I'm one of them, archaeoastronomy steps out of the shadows of the past and into mainstream archaeological research. Scientists have found 6,200-year-old parasite eggs 
in an ancient skeleton in the Near East. And let's head to our final story where a Mesolithic settlement has been discovered in the north of England. Shall we start? Well, let's. For up to four and a half thousand years, sunken dugout canoes have been lying at the bottom of Loch Corrib in County Galway in the far west of Ireland. The lake's shores and its hundreds of islands are covered with well-known archaeological sites, but until recently, few had actually been explored beneath its surface. Thanks to a project to produce up-to-date navigation charts of the lake's relatively shallow waters, sonar highlighted a number of previously undetected sites. It was the appearance of a long, slender anomaly that prompted marine surveyor Trevor Northage to contact Ireland's National Monument Service. A dive team, headed by Carl Brady, was sent to investigate the feature as well as around 20 other suspect sites, over half of which have proven to be the remains of boats of various ages. They've got five log boats securely dated so far. The oldest and largest vessel yet identified as 12 metres long, found near Anakin and radiocarbon dated to 2,500 BCE. The craft is so well preserved that a distinctive spine, 2 to 3 centimetres tall, can be seen running the entire length of its floor. Four cross ridges extend from this at right angles, dividing the boat into sections. The boat's size suggests it had required a crew of perhaps 10 to 12 people. One vessel reveals traces of Bronze Age construction techniques with ancient repairs performed on a 3,500-year-old log boat discovered off Lee Island, showing signs of experimentations with methods that were only just beginning to arrive in Ireland during this period. Although only the base and lower part of the hull remain, details of its construction have survived, including a series of cleats, wooden loops set into the floor, anchoring the slender rods that held the two sections of the hull together, the earliest known example of this technique being used in Ireland. A later Bronze Age vessel was also found near Kilbeg, one of the craft's base remains, but within the boat, the team found a socketed bronze spearhead containing fragments of wood that had been radiocarbon dated to the 9th century BCE, as well as a complete spear carved from yew that lay beside the hull. Spears have proven a common feature of several of the log boats. Two iron spearheads were recovered from the 11th century CE wreck, while a vessel found near Rabbit Island produced four spears. The presence of weapons could indicate that the boats sank while on, shall we say, active service, although spears are sometimes associated with wrecks where the, the vessel itself at the end of its life has been ritually killed. The boat, which gives the clearest insights to its construction, is the beautiful 11th century Carrickmornock boat. This craft is remarkably well preserved, its sides rising almost to the full height, around three quarters of the hull, while four of its five thwarts, which are the, I'm learning lots of nautical terms now, thwarts, seats made from planks, are still in place. Unlike the Bronze Age craft, this boat was not paddled but rowed, as evidence remains of the four pairs of thole pinholes, I told you you're going to learn nautical terms, which would have actually held the oars. This is probably among the best preserved logboats ever found in Britain and Ireland, designed for travelling around the lake at speed. It's just beautifully crafted, the, uh, this is the earliest one, and made for high-status travel for a high-status individual. The discovery of weapons inside the boat, including three battle axes, an ironwork axe, 
two iron spearheads. Apologies, I'm not I'm talking about. I get all confused at the boats. This is the 11th century one. Um, they discovered the weapons inside the boat, including the three battle axes, an iron working axe, two iron spearheads, and a curious piece of metal provisionally interpreted as a cow- copper alloy dagger pommel suggests that the crew were also warriors. One blade is so large, its owner would have needed both hands to wield it. Sections of all three axes' cherrywood handles also survived, and the complete haft of the largest axe is 80 centimetres long. These are classic Viking-style weapons, Brady says, though by the 11th century they're more likely to have been in the hands of Irish warriors rather than Norse raiders. So it looks like um, they were off somewhere, and they sank, leaving us with some remarkable pieces of nautical heritage. Now, archaeologists in Norway have found what could be an 8,000-year-old human skull containing traces of uh, brain matter. The site at uh, Stoke in Vestfold was a, m- an, among a number of discoveries unearthed during the excavation. It's too early to tell whether the remains, however, are that of a human child or an animal. Don't laugh, they've not got it out of the ground yet, but early tests have actually dated the skull to around 5,900 BCE. The dig team leader said that this one-of-a-kind skull contained a grey substance that appeared to be brain matter, and when they removed some sample squares, they came down onto a soil which was rich in carbon. These carbon samples were sent off for fast dating in order to find out a little more about what they were dealing with before they actually start excavating the, the, the pit itself. And that's where they're getting this date of 5,900 BCE. Very wise choice there. Now, spending a little bit more time in Scandinavia, and it's about time I did as well, in 1999, the bones of several elk were excavated from Lundby Bog in the south of Denmark's largest island of Zealand. Archaeologists then dated some of the remains to between 9,400 to 9,300 BCE. So we're looking at Mesolithic there. Recently, new carbon dating on this bones has revealed the date of between 9,873 and 9,676 BCE. A wider range and about 400 years earlier. Christopher Pedersen, an archaeologist and chief curator of Museums Southeastern Denmark, says that, that so far they've not found settlements that are as old as the elk bones. So the identity of the people who put the bones in the bog is something of a mystery. The way the bones were buried indicate that the remains of each animal had been wrapped up in a fur. People must have believed that everything in nature had a soul and to ensure balance had gathered up the bones that they had eaten and then sacrificed them into the bog. Mikkel, well, that's one interpretation. Mikkel Sorensen, an associate professor from the Saxo Institute of the University of Copenhagen, agrees with that interpretation that there's definite selection of the bones buried in the bog, so it can be clearly seen and interpreted as a ritual act. The archaeologists have not yet learned whether people lived close to the bog or simply passed by it many times, placing these bones in in doing their ritual acts. An important clue to who buried the elk comes from an axe made from an elk antler, also found in the bog, a kind of tool known only from the Magdalamosian culture that existed between 9000 to 6400 BCE. 
Around the early Neolithic period, technologies came to Denmark from Central Europe via what is now Germany. During this period, Mesolithic-style hunting and fishing continued to be practiced in parallel with the introduction of agriculture and animal husbandry. Most new tool types that characterised the early Neolithic in Denmark were made from local materials and exhibit a smooth evolution from late Mesolithic forms. Among the best known of these tools are the definitely, shall we say, foreign Central European type skol. Uh, I can never say it, so I'm just oh, I'm going to make a fool of myself if I try and do it. So I'll do it English translation. What's called the shoe last kelt, named after the characteristic shape. This type of axe or adze dates from a period just prior to the Neolithic in Denmark. A recent find from the current excavations could reinforce a. German connection, as archaeologist Soren Sorensen uh, says that a heavy red deer antler axe, which contains small fragments of the original wooden handle, cannot be directly attributed to a German origin from the raw material, but by design, giving an indication of direction of cultural exchange. Although antler axes were made throughout the Mesolithic and continued into the Bronze Age as rarer tools, this unique type of T-shaped antler axe is common only in Jutland and northern Germany between the end of the Mesolithic. Are you with me there? I'm glad you are. A second prehistoric circle on a Norfolk beach in England has been dated to exactly the same summer, more than 4,000 years ago, as its slightly more famous neighbour, Seahenge. Archaeologists believe the two circles which originally stood inland in boggy fresh water but are now being gradually eroded by the tides, were part of the same monumental complex connected with rites to honour the dead. In Norfolk, because the salty silt preserved the wood, the two circles at Home Beach are the only ones in Britain to have been precisely dated to 2049 BCE. The circles were discovered at the same time in 1999, but while some of the conserved Seahenge timbers are now on display in the Museum at Lynn, the other one was never excavated. I should point out here, by the way, that um, Seahenge, such a terrible name for it. I mean, it's quite a funky name for it, but a henge actually is a monument with a bank on the outside and a ditch on the inside, and uh, they were never actually in the sea, so both Sea and Henge are Probably not the best ones. That's why we, as archaeologists, call them Home 1 and Home 2. But anyway, let's continue with Seahenge. Norfolk County archaeologists monitoring its decay have just released the dating evidence obtained by dendrochronology by counting the growth rings in the timber, which shows in it was built from trees felled in the spring or summer of 2049 BCE, exactly the same time as the Seahenge timbers were felled as well. The test carried out over the last year, um, well, they had to be done because actually sort of large parts of the, the site were washing away uh, and it would have become impossible. That's why they took the decision to get these dates now. The 55 oak posts of Seahenge surrounded a gnarled oak stump, but the second ring, known as Home 2, was centred on two oak logs laid flat. 
when it was found, these were surrounded by an oval of oak posts with smaller branches woven between them, then an outer arc of split oak timbers, and finally a fence of closely set split oak timbers. Within the four years, the woven branches had gone, and in storms in October 2003 and March 2004, both the logs were washed away. More timbers have been eroded or completely lost every winter. The sea henge timbers reveal the oldest marks of metal axes ever found in Britain, showing that bronze tools were being used for complex woodworking about a century before the introduction of bronze smelting. The marks of at least 36 separate axes were found as well, suggesting that its construction was a major communal project. David Robertson, the Historic Environment Officer at Norfolk County Council, who ran the Home to Dating Project, said he believed the circle may originally have been covered by a burial mound and that the central logs supported a coffin. As the timbers used in both timber circles were felled at the same time, the construction of the two monuments must have been directly linked. Seahenge is thought to have been a freestanding timber circle, possibly to mark the death of an individual, acting as a cenotaph symbolising death rather than actual location for the burial. If part of a burial mound, the second circle would have been the actual burial place. The inevitable destruction of the monument will be monitored, but there are no plans for further excavation. Four years ago, Dr. Andreas Vlachopoulos, a specialist in prehistoric archaeology, began fieldwork on the Aegean island of Astiapalia in Greece. On that remote island, he found a series of inscriptions and large fallacies carved onto a rocky peninsula at Vathe. The inscriptions, both dating to around the 5th to 6th centuries BCE, were so monumental in scale and so tantalisingly clear, he was left in no doubt of the motivation behind the artworks. They were what he would call triumphant inscriptions. Uh, He (laughs) So said the professor who found them while introducing students to the ancient island world of the Aegean. They in effect, claimed the space in large letters that not only expressed sexual desire, but talked about the act of sex itself. And that, according to the professor, is very, very rare. Chiselled into the outcrop of dolomite limestone that dots a cape, the inscriptions have provided invaluable insight into the private lives of those who inhabited archaic Greece. We know that in ancient Greece, sexual desire between men was not a taboo. But this graffiti is not just amongst the earliest ever discovered, it clearly says that these two men were making love over a long period of time, emphasising the sexual act in a way that is highly unusual in erotic artwork. For, found at the highest point of the promontory overlooking the Bay of Vafe on the island's northwest tip, the inscription has led the archaeologists to believe that the soldiers may once have been garrisoned there, two penises engraved into limestone beneath the name of Dion and dating to the 5th century BC, were also discovered at lower heights on the Cape. That would be a nice view, wouldn't it? Whoever wrote the erotic inscription was very well trained in writing as well. Uh, so says Angelos Matteo, for, for more than 25 years, has been the general secretary at the Greek Epigraphic Society. The letters have been very skillfully inscribed on the face of the rock, evidence that it was not just philosophers, scholars and historians who were trained in the art of writing, but also ordinary people and soldiers living on the island. Uh, 
Other rock art found at the site includes carvings depicting oared ships, daggers and spirals, all still discernible despite exposure to the erosive effects of wind and sea. As the best-known motif of early cycladic art representing the waves of the sea, spirals symbolise perpetual motion as the driving force in the life and thought of the island communities. We know that Greek islands were inhabited by the 3rd millennium BCE, but what we have found on this uh, site is evidence that even then people were using coded language of symbols and imagery to describe their feelings. That's a very um, lovely story of uh, love in the past. Now, let's head off, uh, and I I have to say, I I said... um, uh, Siberia, I, I might have fibbed slightly to you. I actually meant Western Pomerania, where they found the meteorite fragment. Yes, they found the 9,000-year-old hut. They've been working on the site for quite some time. Uh, and the pyrite meteorite fragment is a very small cylindrical shape, about 8 centimetres long. Not much uh, wider as well. But what they have decided, this is the Polish archaeologists who've been working on the site, is that it was a very special, perhaps even ritual object. The meteorite had been brought to the shelter that they discovered it uh, within, uh, the hut that they found it within, as a special object, not of this world, which must have been obvious to the, the people at the time. The thing, the object, the meteorite, became an object of belief and may even have been used in shamanic magic, so says the head of the research project. They're allowed to have these ideas. The archaeologists also excavated a rich assemblage of other objects with spiritual association, uh, amulets, a bone spear tip with engraved decoration, and even a a so-called magic wand made of antler decorated completely with geometric motifs. In addition to the remains of this hut, which contained the meteorite, archaeologists discovered a second, almost identical structure, and in both of them, within the peat layer, were preserved traces of hearths. Excavations at the site at Bolkur have been ongoing for several years. The meteorite discovery was made during last year's work, but only now, thanks to a little bit more detailed study, were they able to conclusively determine the origin of this unusual object. Four years ago, I don't know if you remember this, archaeologists also uncovered a nearly intact Mesolithic hunting bow from the peat deposits that covered the site, and they're certain that more is going to be revealed in the future. What you're looking at here is um, a very interesting ability to see a Mesolithic settlement, but huts are being occupied and used by different people. And by also looking at, uh, shall we say, reasonably contemporary or 20th century shamanistic um, uh, magic from Siberia, then you're seeing very, very similar uh, assemblages of material, including, I'd say, these sort of spear tips and magic wands. And so uh, this is going to be a very interesting site, looking at uh, a complete society from the Mesolithic. Now, eat up your greens. Well, the Neanderthals certainly did. Traces of 50,000-year-old faeces found at a site in Spain suggest that Neanderthals may have had a healthy dose of plants in their diet. Recent research has upended the image of Neanderthals, the closest extinct relatives to us, Homo sapiens, that roamed Eurasia 
around 230,000 to 40,000 years ago. Some studies in the past few years have also suggested that Neanderthals probably had very well-rounded diets. Archaeologists have found residues of fish scales, of bird feathers and even starchy plants at a Neanderthal cave in the Rhone Valley in France. Another group of researchers discovered seal, dolphin and fish bones near a Neanderthal hearth on the rock of Gibraltar. A 2010 study identified microfossils of plants such as date palm, legumes and grass seeds stuck in Neanderthal teeth plaque. For the new study, researchers looked for telltale biomarkers in coprolites found at El Salt, an archaeological site in Alicante in Spain, which Neanderthals occupied at various times between 60,000 to 45,000 years ago. All samples indicated that Neanderthals ate animals. Evidence came in the form of coprostanol, a lipid created when the body metabolizes cholesterol, but two samples also had a dash of 5B stigmasantanol. You know that one. A chemical quite clearly produced when the gut breaks down phytosterol, a cholesterol-like compound that only comes from plants. The researchers confirmed this was the first direct evidence that Neanderthals had an omnivorous diet. It's important to understand that uh, as Neanderthals are primates, and most primates are omnivores, that it was hardly surprising. We cannot say anything about what kind of plants, however, they were actually eating. But some scientists have suggested that in this area, they probably had access to berries, nuts and tubers. Other experts were sceptical about whether the samples in question even belonged to Neanderthals. In pointing a finger at these human cousins, the authors of the paper may have been too quick to rule out bears, wild boars and other omnivores that could have wandered onto the site and left a present, shall we say. Notoriously difficult to identify the species of coprolite, so it's far from secure that the coprolites were worked on are from humans, so said Michael Richards, a researcher at the Mass Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Germany. Another researcher noted the questionable placement of faeces found right next to the fire. Just how would these Neanderthal faeces end up so close to their cooking place? Um, which again is a, another valid point. We know that modern bears, however, are attracted to abandoned hearths and that they leave their droppings without any afterthoughts. There's two things that are interesting about this story. One is the fact that, again, of course Neanderthals would have tried to exploit um, a plant diet, but you can't really say that for certain until you have absolute evidence. And the fact that archaeology and science as a discipline is always working on the, the basis that more evidence has to be found to validate what has been theorised. It's the way that science works. Oh yes. This summer, and this is the way that tourists work, archaeologists are welcoming them to explore an ancient British hill fort full of British, uh, sorry, full of prehistoric artefacts as the researchers wrap up an excavation at a site, the fort called Burra Hill, carved into the side of a 690-foot mound in the modern-day English county of Leicestershire during the Iron Age, around 500 BCE, which had been used until the 3rd and 4th century CE. That sounds like our site as well, the sheriff's site. Mm, interesting. A five-year excavation of the site yielded bones, jewellery, pottery and even gaming pieces. 
Archaeologists will open the hill fort to visitors on June the 29th. Sorry, you've missed it. Hosting guided tours that allow people to touch the artifacts and offering them Iron Age combat lessons before the dig comes to a final close. The thing, the reason I actually stuck this one in is because, again, it's that's the whole point of archaeology. It should be for all of us to actually get involved in what is going on. There's no point in us doing archaeology if uh, the general public at large don't get to see what we've been doing and understand why it is we're actually doing it. Now we're going to have a bit of bling, a bit of Bronze Age bling. A 4,200-year-old necklace made of alternating black and white disc-shaped beads has been helping British researchers to devise a new method for the identification of shell species in archaeological artefacts. Mollusk shells appears to have been among the first durable materials used for personal ornaments and building tools, but their often degraded condition makes it very hard to identify the species with traditional analysis. York University's Beatrice de Marchi, Julie Wilson and their colleagues use statistical pattern recognition methods and amino acid analysis to distinguish shells taxonomically. The new approach was tested on a necklace which has intrigued archaeologists ever since its discovery in 2009 at an early Bronze Age site near Suffolk in East England. In the grave of a young woman, radiocarbon dated to around 2200 BCE, the necklace was found consisting of strings of tiny disc beads of shells and black jet from Whitby, 260 kilometres to the north. Alison Sheridan, Principal Curator of Early Prehistoric at National Museums of Scotland, said that the necklace had not been worn on the body of the deceased, but was found near the head. Beads of jet and shell alternated in a zebra design, interspersed with these, and uh, we're trying to work out exactly how this worked just now, were a number of amber beads, some perforated straight, but some with cross-shaped perforations. The necklace design is in fact unique, although a lot of early Bronze Age jet jewellery and some amber jewellery from the period is known. However, the use of seashells for jewellery during the early Bronze Age is incredibly rare. It appears that the Bronze Age craftspeople used wait for it, local shells like dog whelk and tusk shells to make the necklace. Conical, curved and open at both ends, tusk shells remember miniature elephant tusks. Hence the name. But of course the jet's coming from much further away and the amber's coming from the Baltic. So these Bronze Age craftspeople were actually utilising a number of sources to create their jewellery. Now, my favourite, the chariot burial. An ancient burial containing chariots, gold artefacts and maybe even human sacrifices has been discovered, this story has got it all, has been discovered by archaeologists in the country of Georgia in the South Caucasus. The burial site, which wouldn't would have been intended for a, a chief, for example, dates back over four thousand years to the early Bronze Age in that area. Archaeologists discovered the timber burial chamber within a thirty-nine foot high mound, which is known as a kurgan. When the archaeologists reached the chamber, they found an assortment of treasures, including two chariots, each with four wooden wheels. The team discovered ornamented clay and wooden vessels, flint and obsidian arrowheads, leather and textile artefacts, a unique wooden armchair, carnelian, amber beads, and 23 golden artefacts, including rare and artistically crafted jewellery. We found all about this when uh, Makaradze uh, presented the results at the International Congress on the Archaeology of the Ancient Near East at uh, University of Basel in Switzerland. 
While the human remains had sadly been disturbed by a robbery, which probably occurred in the past, the archaeologists found that seven people were buried in the chamber. They obviously missed quite a few objects when they were robbing it. One of them, one of the people in the tomb, would have been an important elite, and the others can be either members of the family or sacrifice servants. I love it when archaeologists uh, get on uh, uh, to sacrifice servants and uh, human sacrifice and that sort of stuff. Anyway, the burial dates back to a time before domesticated horses appeared in the area. So while no animals are found buried with the chariots, it's pretty likely that uh, it would have been oxen that pulled them. So rather than use the word chariot, I think I'll I'll go for the word um, four-wheeled cart. Doesn't sound so good though, does it? Other rich Kurgan burials dating to the second half of the 3rd millennium BCE have also been found in the South Caucasus. The appearance of these rich burials appears to be connected to interactions that occurred between nomadic people from the Eurasian steppes and farming communities within the Near and South Caucasus. These interactions appear to have led to some individuals, like this chief, getting very elaborate burials. The newly discovered armchair symbolises the power that the individual likely had. The purpose of the wooden chair would be an indication of power. Um, Game of Thrones, anyone? Perhaps. Now, a developing field of research that merges astronomical techniques with the study of ancient man-made features and the surrounding landscape was highlighted at the recent National Astronomy Meeting in Portsmouth, with archaeoastronomers revealing evidence that Neolithic and Bronze Age people were acute observers of the sun, moon and stars, and embedding astronomical references within their landscapes. There's more to archaeoastronomy than... (gasps) Stonehenge, so says Dr. Daniel Brown of Nottingham Trent University. Modern archaeoastronomy encompasses many other research areas such as anthropology, ethnoastronomy and even educational research. It stepped away from speculative beginnings and placing itself solidly in the foundations of statistical analysis and archaeological methodology. In response to this, some researchers are proposing to rename the field Skyscape Archaeology. Dr. Fabio Silva of University College London and co-editor of the recently established Journal for Skyscape Archaeology and guess who's also one of these editors? Oh no, yes, hello, that's me. Uh, It's no longer enough to simply collect orientation data for a large number of monuments spread over vast regions and then look for vast, broad patterns. Dr. Silva's studies of European megaliths focuses on a 6,000-year-old winter occupation site and megalithic structures in the Mondego Valley in central Portugal. Now here he's focusing right down and just looking at entrance corridors for all passage graves in a given necropolis and look at how they are aligned with the seasonal risings over nearby mountains of the star Aldebaran. Aldabaran, sorry. Um, is that not where Hansel came from? Not sure. The brightest star in the constellation of Taurus. This link between the appearance of the star in springtime and the mountains where the dolmen builders spent their summers echoes in local folklore about how the Serra del Estrada, or the mountain range of the star, received its name from a shepherd and his dog following a star. I can tell you there's a few people who are going to love matching this up with local folklore. Anyway... Pamela Armstrong of the University of Wales Trinity St David integrates the idea of skyscape in her works on the first stone chamber tombs in Britain. 
on the North Cotswolds. Her work sheds light upon whether these Neolithic settlers practice a different astronomy to that of the Mesolithic hunter-gatherers who preceded them in the landscape. Brian Sheen and Gary Cutts of the Roseland Observatory have worked together with Jackie Nolakowski of Cornwall's uh, Historic Environment Service to explore an important Bronze Age astral landscape extending over a thousand hectares on Bodmin Moor. At its heart lies Britain only triple stone circles, the hurlers, two of which are linked to the 4,000 year old granite pavement, um, which has been suggested to uh, represent the Milky Way or, or, or the, another archaeoastronomical feature. We also think that the three circles that comprise the hurlers may be laid out on the ground to resemble Orion's belt. And far from being three isolated circles on the moor, they're actually linked into one landscape. There's still a lot of work to be done on this, but it's uh, great that it's actually now starting to move into the, the mainstream. Now, in what we now know as northern Syria... Uh, researchers have found the earliest known evidence of infection with a parasitic worm that now afflicts more than 200 million people worldwide. Archaeologists who discovered a 132 micrometer long parasite egg near the pelvis of a child skeleton in a Mesopotamian graveyard say it dates to a time when society first used irrigation systems to grow crops. The Ubayid people who lived in Tel Zidane between 6,500 to 6,000 years ago, are known to have pioneered the use of irrigation to grow food on their arid land. Living near and working in these canals would have put them into the parasite's path, allowing it to jump from its temporary hosts, freshwater snails, into people's intestines, as it continues to do so in Africa, Asia and South America today. Before this discovery, the oldest confirmed case of schistosomiasis was in fact 5,200-year-old mummy in Egypt. According to a team leader and paleopathologist, Piers Mitchell, of the University at Cambridge in the UK, a lot of different parasites, roundworms, hookworms, whipworms, find it very difficult to infect you if you're moving around a lot of the time. Nomadic groups remain small, don't stick around long enough to contaminate any one water source and tend not to keep domestic animals, such as sheep and dogs, which can be sources of the parasites. When humans turn to agriculture, populations grew past the critical thresholds that infectious diseases required to sustain themselves. Jill Stein, a professor of Near Eastern Archaeology at the University of Chicago and one of the report's authors, said that irrigation might have also spurred outbreaks of other diseases such as malaria. Other experts agree it was likely that irrigation spread parasitic diseases beginning in ancient times. Scott Lawton, a parasitologist from Kingston University of London, cautions against drawing too many conclusions from a single egg could have been through irrigation, it could have been through natural waterways, it may even have been an infection picked up from travelling elsewhere in the Middle East or North Africa. There's certainly more work to be done to disentangle the cause of the infection in the Syrian gravesite. Now we end with archaeologists being stunned. Uh, I always love a stunned archaeologist, it makes them more compliant. Archaeologists were stunned to discover an evidence of a Mesolithic settlement alongside the A1, which stretches between London and Edinburgh in Britain, suggesting the route 
may have been used for almost 10,000 years. The site near Catterick in North Yorkshire is believed to have been used by people travelling north and south as an overnight shelter. Items discovered at the settlement include flint tools that date back to between 6 to 8,000 BCE. The rare discovery came during the excavation of a known Roman settlement in advance of plans to upgrade a road junction. Archaeologists are excavating all the ancient monuments before they become less accessible, or, in fact, underneath a road. They're focusing on the Roman town of Catacronium, <laughs> located by the road near the River Swale. Archaeologist Steve Sherlock um, from Northern Archaeological Associates said it was fascinating to find one of those was, uh, one of the sites that they found was a Mesolithic one, going back 8,000 years before the actual Romans. So he added that this was a place that people knew of, a place that they could return to on many occasions and stay overnight uh, as they moved on their travels. There's evidence of people using the route and moving through the area over a period of time. It's also adding much to the knowledge of what people were doing in this landscape during the Mesolithic period. So on that bombshell, and uh, while I can still speak, I hope, Stuart, that the bath has not gone cold on you, and I hope the rest of you have enjoyed this uh, rather large and extended archaeology news. Can I remind you all that PastHorizonsPR.com is always there for you, and uh, soon to have a large and exciting update. And Badger is always there for you for the latest news. Stone pages, of course. How can you forget Stone Pages? Fabulous, wonderful as ever. News.stonepages.com. Thank you so much for listening to the Archaeology News. We hope you'll return again to us next week. Mm-hmm.